We are continuing in our Advent series, Waiting in Hope, a look through the minor prophets. This morning we're going to be in the minor prophet of Micah. Micah. So if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 778 is Micah chapter 5. That's where we'll be. Uh, if, you're, if you're using your own Bible and you're flipping through, again, as I've said each week as we've done this, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents and trying to find the minor prophet that we're in. Uh, Micah falls between Jonah and Nahum. So if you're flipping through and you see one of those books, you know that you're close, you're getting warm. As I mentioned last week, uh, the, the question that we, uh, that we have to start with is, is why are we looking at the minor prophets? Why do we want to spend this time in the minor prophets? And I mentioned last week, it's because one of the reasons is because all of Scripture, all of Scripture points to Jesus. And lots of it we're familiar with. There's a number of books that we have spent lots of time in, a number of places that we go to read about, and we're familiar with lots of the pictures, especially in the Old Testament, we're familiar with a number of those pictures that point to Jesus. But we're not familiar. We're not as familiar with these minor prophets. We don't go there as often. And yet, and yet the lessons that we find in these minor prophets They help us, just as well as all of the other books, they help us to see how God is orchestrating everything together for his glory. Even in the midst of darkness and suffering, even in the midst of death and destruction, even in the midst of suffering, there is a glimmer of hope. And that's what we find in the Minor Prophets. It's one of the things that we find in these Minor Prophets. And the question this morning is, why do we need that glimmer of hope? Why do we need to see that glimmer of hope that they, that they had in these Old Testament times? And the answer to that question is because we know darkness and suffering. We know darkness and suffering. We know it in a different way than the Old Testament prophets did and the people in the Old Testament times did, but we know suffering. As I mentioned to you in just, just a little bit ago, we, we have a, a church directory that we pray through. Pastor Stephen and I meet weekly, and we have a, a, a couple of pages of that directory that we pray through each week. We pray individually for everyone that's on the page, praying for their families. And then, as you know, hopefully, you know that, that we then attempt to contact you on the week that we pray for you and, and to let you know that we're praying for you and to ask if there's any specific requests that we maybe can pray for as we pray for you during the week. And some of our elders, we've asked our elders to pray through the list as well. And so you maybe have been contacted by some of the elders as they've prayed for you as well. But just this week, just in these last five days, as Pastor Stephen and I have been praying through just a a small portion of our list here at the church, we've gotten these kinds of requests to pray for. Lots of physical requests, physical pain and recovery from from things that are ever-present as influenza and colds that people are dealing with to surgeries that they're recovering from and broken bones that they're dealing with just this week. We've even had a couple of requests about end-of-life kinds of things that we want to be praying for. 
We've been praying this week for broken families, for wayward and lost children, for distance and estranged siblings, for loss, recent family loss, and for struggling marriages. And that's just this week, just in these last five days. We know hardships and sufferings. You know them. We're experiencing them. Our body knows hardships. And so one of the reasons we look here at these books here in the Minor Prophets is so that when we see these glimmers of hope that come through the Old Testament prophets, we can grab onto them. We can hold on to them. We can trust in those glimmers of hope. We, we see, we often see the big truths of God's glory that ring out through all of eternity. We know even these things that I've just mentioned that, that as we've prayed for them, we know that God is using those things even for our good, but we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded of the flickers of light, of the small beams of glorious hope that rings out through the gospel and shines into darkness. So that's why we look at the Minor Prophets. This morning, we're in the book of Micah. Micah, we've been jumping around chronologically in the, in the list of, of Minor Prophets. We've jumped around a little bit. We started with Amos. He was one of the, the earliest prophets of the earliest minor prophets. He was probably number two in the whole list of prophets. Jonah was probably the oldest, then Amos. Then last week, we, we jumped into Zechariah, and Zechariah was one of the, early, or the, the youngest of the prophets, the later of the prophets. He came, he came well after the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions into Israel and Judah. And now we're in Micah, which is back to the beginning. Uh, Micah would have followed after Amos a little ways, a hundred years or so after Amos, but still before the Assyrian invasion into the northern kingdom of Israel. He was probably the last, Micah was probably one of the last prophets before the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. So probably somewhere around 735 B.C., was when Micah showed up, at least the beginning of Micah. Micah has uh, two different distinct sections to his book. So commentators tell us that the first chapters were probably written early there in the 735 era, and then the later chapters probably were written at a different time in Micah's life. But Micah is also, as Amos was, from the southern kingdom of Judah, travels into the northern kingdom of Israel and begins to prophesize there. He, he, his prophecies go both to Israel and to Judah, but Israel is the, is the northern kingdom that's about to be taken over by the Assyrians. As I mentioned when we talked about Amos a couple of weeks ago, this time period in the life of Israel and Judah is, is strong. There is prosperity in, in these countries. And, and they have grown. They have, they, their, their borders have expanded. They have lots and lots of money. They, they, seem to be, they seem to be powerful and strong. And as you know, in the history of, of Israel, in the history of the church, in the history even of you and I, that those moments where everything seems to be going well, 
where everything seems to be going well, there's always something in the background. We begin to turn away often in those times from our dependence upon God, and we begin to run to all kinds of other things. We give our time, we give our devotion, we give our worship in all kinds of other places. And that's exactly what's been happening in Israel and Judah during this time. Idol worship is rampant. There is injustice, especially, especially among the poor in these countries at this time, in these nations at this time. The leaders especially have been the, the prophecies of Amos and of Micah go oftentimes to the leaders of the countries because, because the leaders are corrupt in the ways that they're leading the people. In fact, one of the things that happens here in the book of Micah is that Micah, is, is in his prophecy, is calling out other prophets because there are prophets in the land that are, are being recruited by the priests, by the leaders of the country. The leaders of the country are telling these prophets what they want those prophets to prophesy about. In fact, some of them are even paying the prophets so that they might prophesy in a certain way so that the people can be led because it's supposedly coming directly from God. And they're all in cahoots together. And Micah, Micah is coming out and he's saying, you leaders, you leaders are destroying the nations. And you're sinning against God. And so we come to Micah chapter 5. There's again a a few verses, a small window. There's some glimmer of hope. It's not like Amos. Amos, if you remember, was, was eight and a half chapters Eight and a half chapters of death and destruction and darkness and suffering. Over and over and over, Amos said, this is what God is going to do and it's going to be horrible. And then at the very end of Amos, in just a few verses, at the end of the book, he gives a small glimmer of hope. Micah is not like that. There's, there's more that we find in Micah. But the most famous of the Micah passages comes here in chapter 5. So let's read it together. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler of Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah chapter 5, especially here in verse 2, is a verse that we know well. We recognize it, even as I read it this morning. You recognized it. You know that you have heard it. This is Micah's most famous verse, probably. There's a couple of others that you maybe know and heard. But Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. 
one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You know that verse. You have heard it. And you've heard it in the midst of, you've heard it in the midst of the Christmas story. You read it in Matthew chapter 2. You know the story. The, the wise men are coming. They have seen the star. They, they are coming to, to worship the king. And they come to Herod and they say to Herod, we, we want to, where, where is this king? The, the one that we've been, we followed the star. We, we're coming to worship this king. And Herod, thinking that his kingdom, he is the king of the Jews. He is the one that is supposed to be worshipped. He wants to know more about this king. And so he goes to the high priest and he says, what is the story? Where, where might this king be? And the priests reply in Matthew chapter 2, the rep- priests reply back to Herod, sh- sharing with him this verse, but you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. They're saying, Bethlehem, that's the spot. That's the spot in the Old Testament. That's the spot in Micah chapter 5. That's the spot where the Messiah is to come. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not a significant city. It's significant in the fact that it was the city of David. It's significant from the fact that we see it now as the birthplace of Jesus. But Bethlehem was not a significant city. In fact, if, if the wise men, they, they obviously didn't have Google Maps at the time, but if they would have had Google Maps, they would have taken Google Maps and opened up their, their device, their tablet, and they would have had to scroll several times, zooming in deeper and deeper and deeper until they were almost to the very road to find Bethlehem. It was not, it did not have the big letters on the map. It was small. It was insignificant. It was not what you would expect the Messiah to come to. It was much more like Albie or Rudolph here in our area. Cities that we don't even recognize or know, many of us. Bethlehem was insignificant. What could come from there? And yet the insignificance of Bethlehem is exactly, I think, one of the reasons that it's a key in the Messianic story. Its insignificance is one of the reasons why. Because God often uses small things to make big scenes. God often uses seemingly meaningless things in unfathomable unfathomably meaningful ways. Said another way, God makes much of little. Why does he do it that way? Why does God use meaningless things in meaningful ways? He does it so that we see that it's all about him. It's all about him. And Paul tells it to us this same way. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. 
so that no human might boast in the presence of God, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God chooses small and insignificant things. He works in small and insignificant things. He chooses the small. He chooses the seemingly foolish. He chooses the seemingly insignificant. God chooses the seemingly worthless to show his incomparable, magnificent, and glorious majesty. God chooses the low and the weak and the small. God chooses the things that are not. God chooses you and I. And that's our glimmer of hope. There are absolutely moments there are absolutely times when we look in the mirror, when we look at ourselves and we say we are seemingly meaningless. And yet, God chooses you and me. Not so that we might boast, because there's nothing in us to boast about, but so that we might boast about him let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He goes on, though, Micah, in this prophecy. He says, Oh, you, Bethlehem and Paphra, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. But from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Even Micah, even Micah reminds us that all of the gospel all of salvation, all of redemption, all of God's rescue plan, it's all from God and for God. From you shall come forth for me, God says through Micah. God is reminding Israel that the one that is to come is coming for him. It's coming, he's coming for his glory, for God's glory. We need to understand our right place in the grand scheme of the universe. I just spent several minutes telling you about how God has chosen something small and meaningless and insignificant, and God has chosen you and I. And I mean all of that. And yet here, I'm telling you just the opposite of that. Don't get a big head. Don't think too much of your significance. But understand your right place in the grand scheme of all of this. God did so love the world that he sent his son. He loves you and I. He cherishes his children. And yet, all of salvation... All of this rescue plan is about God and for God. God is orchestrating all things together for his glory, for God's glory. And God's glory is our good. He also tells us here in Micah chapter 5, that for, from you shall come forth for me. It's about God's glory. But he also says in that same verse, he says, 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. God reminds us that this plan, this salvation, rescue, redemption plan that is for him has been on his mind from ancient days, from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise that he was going to rescue and redeem his people. That it was his plan from the very beginning, but it was for his glory. From the ancient of days, this plan had come forth. He goes on in this passage in chapter, or chapter 5, verse 4. He says, he shall stand, talking about this Messiah that is to come from Bethlehem, Epaphra. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This Messiah that is to come, he's going to stand He's going to be on his toes. He's going to, to work. He's going to continue to tend. He's going to keep his people. That even right now, Scripture tells us, even right now, Jesus Christ is interceding on behalf of his children. That Jesus is working, is praying for you and I. He's standing and shepherding his flock Shepherding, lovingly leading us, leading his people into the strength of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure, he says, for he shall be great. This small, seemingly insignificant one, this baby that's born into Bethlehem, this carpenter, that comes from Nazareth, this Galilean who has 12 followers, this one who is arrested by the leaders, this one who is tried and then mocked and reviled, this one who is beaten, this one who is spit on and stripped naked, this one who is disregarded, this one He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ, the Messiah that's promised here in Micah chapter 5. He shall be great. His name is going to ring out. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. All of the earth will sing his praises all of the glory in the highest will be there to declare his name. The shepherds on that night in Bethlehem, they heard a portion of that as the angels came and announced the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. But there will be a day. There will be a day that is even yet to come from now where his name Will be, shall be great and declared to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Micah tells us in verse 5. He shall be their peace. In that final day, Micah says, the peace is not going to come from high walls. 
It's not going to come from mighty weapons. In fact, earlier, if you flip back a page and look in Micah chapter 4, there's a couple of different passages there that talk. Micah talks about how in that final day, swords are going to be converted into plows because there's not going to be any need for defensive weapons in that day. There will be peace. And if you remember the promise of Amos, when we looked at that passage, the promise of Amos was that the, the harvesters were going to, or, the, or the, the, the planters were going to meet the harvesters, that when it was time to plant in the field, the harvesters were still going to be there because the crop had been so good. Now Micah is telling us the same thing. We're going we're gonna to need, need farming tools. We're not going to need, we're not going to need weapons because the harvest is going to be so good. The peace, the peace is not going to come from the strength of an army or from the courage of the soldiers, but the peace will come in the person of Jesus. The peace is going to come in the glory of the Savior. Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross just before he dies, says it is finished, and that finished work is our peace. Micah even tells it to us. Flip a couple of pages over to the very end of Micah. In Micah chapter 7, as he closes out his book, he says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He is our peace. Because God has pardoned iniquity. He has tread them underfoot. He has thrown them into the sea. And he has given us hope. The worship team is going to come this morning and lead us. After Micah prophesies this, it's more than 700 years before the Messiah shows up in that tiny little town of Bethlehem. It's another 2,000 plus that we've been waiting for this final promise. But there's glimmers of hope. There's glimmers of hope in those 700 years for the Israelites and the Judites. There's glimmers of hope in the 400 years of silence when there's a famine in the land of God's word. There's glimmers of hope in these 2,000 years as we wait because our Savior, Jesus Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but instead made himself nothing. He took on flesh and he became a man and he was born in this smallest town of Bethlehem and tabernacled with his chosen people 
Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died and even right now is standing and working on our behalf, preparing a way and a place for us. And so we trust in that hope. Stand with me this morning as we sing together. chapter 11. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God bless you.